0: Today's conversation connects a former evangelical pastor turned editor-in-chief at Christianity Today and a D.C.-based Muslim attorney whose new book tells a fascinating tale about the contours of religious liberty in America and what, given our founding and the Constitution and our history, we should want religious freedom today to actually look like. Many of us would agree that as Ambassador Sam Brownback said on this podcast recently, religious freedom is kind of the big one. You get it right, he argues, and a lot of other things follow. And you'd think, given our incredible heritage, for centuries America was a place to come build a life, to worship freely as you saw fit. You'd think we could stand out today as a beacon. But questions that Asma Udin asks are real and practical in an age when worldviews differ. Can the three and a half million people who today tell Pew and Gallup that they are Muslims in America live together peacefully with 214 million men and women who tell the same pollsters that they're American Christians. How can our school systems and city ordinances make peaceful coexistence truly possible, not only for Christians and Muslims, but for seven and a half million Jews, 15 and a half million Mormons, and Eastern traditions and a growing cohort of nuns and others who are equally protected by the First Amendment. In her book and in today's conversation, Asma cautions strongly against the kind of government-imposed order that would tip the scale for or against any of our faith traditions.
1: Preferring one religion actually ends up diluting that religion. That's the true dilution. When you allow this preference, which necessarily requires the government to be able to step into doctrinal issues and interfere in the religious autonomy of different religious organizations.
0: Asma Uddin is a fellow with the Inclusive America Project at the Aspen Institute in addition to recently serving as an attorney with the Beckett Fund and as founding editor of Alt-Muslima, an online newsletter about gender and Islam. She's also a recent senior advisor at the OSCE, a scholar at the Freedom Forum Institute and a Berkeley Center Research Fellow at Georgetown. Daniel Harrell has for two decades been an evangelical pastor, first at the historic Park Street Church in Boston and then a senior pastor of a large congregation in Minnesota. As Christianity Today's new editor in chief, He brings a passionate love of not only theology, but of the power of words, something he shared deeply with his wife Dawn, who tragically died unexpectedly last Easter. As you'll hear next, Daniel's tender perception reflects that difficult grief, and we're truly grateful for the privilege of hosting him and Asma both. A final note, the day after we recorded this conversation, Asma was a speaker on a panel at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. Shortly before she spoke, Frank Gaffney argued publicly from the lectern that the organizers had made a mistake in inviting her, and that her views and associations were pernicious and bad for America. His remarks, captured in full on an iPhone by Bill Clinton's former chief speechwriter and linked in the show notes, demonstrate the very clash this conversation seeks to transcend. It was reassuring and hopeful, I thought, that when Attorney General Bill Barr immediately followed Gaffney, He argued squarely the opposite, saying liberal democracy recognizes that preserving broad personal freedom, including the freedom to pursue one's own spiritual life and destiny best comports with the true nature and dignity of man. Using the power of the state to guide or elevate any one citizen's faith over another's is wrong. Period. And as Asma argues in her book, the faithful pursuit of truth is always personal and discoveries made freely and not under cultural or status compulsion are the discoveries we're created for. A former colleague of USMA's, Luke Goodrich, reminds us that we should always remember that the state that would muzzle Islam today could very well become the state that muzzles Christianity tomorrow. Religious freedom is for all or it is for none. Enjoy the conversation.
2: I really enjoyed uh, your book. Thank you so much for writing it. I I highlighted several passages, and one I'm looking at here is, is where you wrote, religious freedom for all is not about advocating a free for all, that there are limits to religious freedom. The law starts by drawing a distinction between beliefs and actions. Americans can hold any belief they wish, but when they express beliefs through actions, the government can restrict those actions. And it struck me, thinking about that, how for devout believers, the dichotomy between faith and action is, is a hard one, because so much of what we believe is, is what we do. And to keep that stark uh, differentiation is a real challenge. And so I thought I would just hear you maybe drill down a little bit in that distinction and how that that works for Muslims and people of all faith.
1: Sure. And thank you, Daniel, for joining me today. I agree that it's hard sometimes to create that distinction from from religious perspective between what we believe, right, our our fundamental idea of truth and the way that translates into our behavior or actions. For me, I thought specifically talking about this in the context of American Muslims and their rights, it was important to draw that distinction because what I'm trying to do here is to the same time as telling this narrative about what religious freedom is and how it works and how it's important in the way that we advocate for it because it'll affect all americans wanted to also point out to the underlying fears right address the fears when it comes specifically to muslims and one big fear is they're just, especially with so much misinformation, so much crazy stuff going on in our geopolitics, the fact that most Americans don't know a Muslim personally, lots of stuff that they're fed, essentially, either by the news or by what I talk about in the book as a fear industry about Islam, really makes them scared. And a huge part of that resistance to Muslims having religious freedom is that, well, if we give these guys freedom, they're going to use it to take over the U.S. and subvert U.S. constitutional values and implement all of their wide-ranging, scary or odd beliefs and so I wanted to upfront just make that distinction that, look, extending religious freedom doesn't mean that the all these horrible things that you're envisioning are actually going to come to fruition. There is still this moderating force that the law steps in and regulates. Quite apart from whether or not those things that you think are are Islamic are actually Islamic is the question of, well, the law has a way to figure that out. The belief versus believer's distinction, I thought, was really important in getting to the underlying fear I completely agree with you that it's core to who we are as religious believers to have a, a struggle in differentiating those two things. And I think that is like the big religious freedom question today, right? How do we coexist with people who are different from us and who expect us to not live out our beliefs and enforce us into a place where we're not authentic to
2: who we are? Yeah, and no, it's probably as a Christian easier because, certainly, culturally speaking, there's a sense in which. American politics and law and culture sort of expresses, at least in a civic way, the, the tenets of Christianity historically. But I, I wonder for, for Muslims, when you make this, this dichotomy, is that you talk about it being hard? Is there a, a concern that to be accepted by American culture is somehow to subvert identity and sort of the power of your faith?
1: Well, I think there's two pieces of that, right? Like one is what is American identity? I think that's like the big question right now. And I think that lots of different people, including traditional religious believers of of an array of faiths, are are struggling with that because there's a particular conception of what America is that other people don't agree with, and but they feel that they're being coerced to accept. right? So there's that big question, which I think absolutely, Muslims, as all other religious groups, especially if you differentiate between more conservative versus more liberal Muslims, are are facing. I mean, the divisions within each religious community sort of maps out in that way into the divisions in our politics more generally. I think what you're also driving at is this idea that, well, is Islam somehow just at odds with America, right? Or is it? Is, does it have a harder time than other religions, sort of making? American and iteration of it, sort of like authentic to it. And that is actually something that I address in the book in chapter five, I believe, where I address this sort of big bogeyman of Sharia, right? What is Sharia? What is Islamic law? And I explained to the reader, because a part of this this book is also it's not just the legalese, it's it's about myself as a as a religious believer, somebody who grew up in a very devout family and what that experience of Islam is, but specifically Islam in America. And so I, I shared the story of how my experience with Sharia is the amazing scholars, American Muslim scholars, who guided me through and continue to guide me through all the sort of big questions that I have faced growing up. And and one of them is Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, and he wrote this paper called Islam and the Cultural Imperative, which that's the part, actually, I would I'd love to read a little bit from the book. So I write there. I studied with Dr. Omar Faulk Abdullah, whose work on Islam and the cultural imperative was groundbreaking for me. I learned that the history of my religion was one of sustained cultural relevance in distinct peoples, diverse places, and different times. Wherever Muslims went, Islam became not only functional and familiar at the local level, but dynamically engaging, fostering stable indigenous Muslim identities, and allowing Muslims to put down deep roots and make lasting contributions. He urged me and all of his students to find a unique American Islam that drew from its American environment. Don't sit back and let culture be dictated to you. Create culture, because Islamic law demands it. One of the five universal maxims of Sharia is, cultural usage shall have the weight of law. That is, Muslims cannot reject sound custom and usage. If a particular local custom didn't violate some clear Islamic precept, Muslims should embrace it and make it their own. Another well-known principle of Islamic jurisprudence emphasized that cultural usage is second nature. In other words, it is as difficult for people to go against their established customs as it is for them to defy their instinctive natures. So, Dr. Abdullah said Islamic law, or Sharia, requires that Muslims, wherever they live, accommodate local norms whenever possible. Islam isn't about contesting your local culture, it's about becoming part of it and in the process elevating it through your faith-inspired contributions. The Islamic legal tradition must not be seen as a program of detailed prohibitions and inhibitions. It has to be made relevant to the day-to-day imperatives of our lives with an eye to fostering positive identity and dynamic integration into American society. We cannot remain true to the sacred law if we are unable to see the forest or the trees." And so I think that, for me, is the way that as an American Muslim, I see the relationship between my faith and my country. It's just, not only are they not at odds, but Islam, by its very nature, by the very nature of Islamic jurisprudence, is supposed to sort of meld into and adopt various aspects of its environment, whatever cultural context it might find itself in.
2: I think the intentionality that's embedded within that is is fascinating because I know in a lot of circles I travel in, it happens either unaware and gets critiqued, or the extent to which culture does shape is pressed against and, and needing change. And so this this idea that you would intentionally bring your faith to bear on culture to make it fit what it is you believe is is fascinating.
0: Yes, yes. And I was going to add, Daniel, it's interesting to consider the eloquence of what you just laid out and described against the backdrop of American religious liberty law that is so ennobling and that is motivating for many to pick up the flag and be a part of religious freedom cases and and making room for the other and finding ways to, the famous line from Washington was that may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree. And there shall be none to make him afraid. I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of that when you're a, a, an undergraduate uh, thinking about law school? And as you say in the in the book, in 2000 there was this unanimous passage of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Earlier than that, seven years prior, the RIFREP passed overwhelmingly, allowing for religious freedom and accommodation. And yet, perhaps post 9/11, something is quite different now, and has felt different for couple of decades. And you described something in the book about Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Can you tell us about that? Where's the title for the book come from? And what's the problem?
1: Sure. So the title again is When Islam is Not a Religion. And there are Lots of different angles that I take on that. Later on in the book, I look at sort of a more subtle version of that, where it's this conception of Islam as something that's not a religious identity, but more like a secular political identity. But the bulk of the book looks at this claim that Islam is not a religion. It was an argument that was made in this Murfreesboro case where the Muslims of Murfreesboro set out to build a mosque, a larger Islamic center with sports facilities, etc., And the county approved it just the same way that it approves the construction plans for any other house of worship, right? There are special protections under the Religious Land Use Act and under more local laws. And so the claim in this case was that, well, the Muslims should not have been able to have the benefit of these laws because those laws are for religions and Islam is not a religion. It is instead a dangerous political ideology, that is hell-bent on taking over the United States. Again, the idea being if you give them freedom, that is ultimately problematic for American national security. And so therefore, they don't get any of these protections. That's the center of the book. The idea, I I open with a story of the Murfreesboro case. And I also share how in 2010, when I was at the Beckett Fund and working on this case, I thought it was just sort of like this fringe argument that (laughs) crazy people just said, they'll come up once and it'll be done. But it really led me to write the book in 2018 was the fact that it hadn't gone away, that many of the people who are responsible for generating these talking points actually have now sort of moved from the fringe to the center of power, including advising our current president.
0: Right, so you say in a New York Times op-ed elsewhere, something about 44% of Americans still think there's a natural conflict between Islam and democracy, that since 2010, well over 217 cases, either ban or curtail, want to ban or curtail practice of Islamic law, 43 states have had. In other words, that the pushback against full Muslim participation in our democracy is broad and widespread. What does that look like at the legal level where you where you inhabit?
1: Sure. So the other part of this, the other sort of inspiration behind the book was the fact that so much of what's written about this this idea of Islamophobia, and I know that's like a very slightly politicized term, but let's call it anti-Muslim sentiment. It tends to focus on what politicians are saying, what media personalities are saying, to the extent that it includes conversation about legal rights. It tends to focus on national security or maybe immigration. But what really sort of was interesting and also deeply troubling for me was the fact that These issues that a religious community is facing, that religious believers are facing, has never been talked about comprehensively as a religious liberty issue. And again, that's what the book is kind of getting at, like all the different reasons for that, but also just sort of like just a big gap in the way that religious freedom is conceived of and and connected to certain religious claims, but not other ones. And I was like, well, wait a second. These are all very serious religious freedom concerns and it needs to be talked about in that frame so that the same people who champion religious freedom can perhaps then see that this is a problem that they need to be concerned about as well. And so some of those things, Josh, as you you mentioned, these so-called anti-Sharia bills that have been either proposed or enacted in 43 U.S. states to date, 217 such bills have been proposed. And when you say that it's trying to resist the, the use of Islamic law that might scare some listeners before they understand that this is what it's really kind of dealing with is the ability for Muslims who want to arbitrate some of their personal matters according to Islamic tradition should be allowed to take that to an arbitrator who is well versed in that tradition only when that decision is taken to a secular civil court who checks for various things, including whether or not it comports the American public policy and American law. Only then is it enforced. So there's like this big bogeyman of Sharia again, right? We have these march against Sharia that are happening like in that have happened in numerous states. And a lot of it is just a very concerted strategic fear mongering that this very well funded $1.5 billion to date fear industry of organizations and individuals whose job it is day in and day out to cultivate this fear about Muslims, they've created this bogeyman. And a lot of Americans have have sort of absorbed it without realizing just how strategic and pernicious that effort is.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about, I think there was one place, Asma, that you wrote about uh, Pat Buchanan, I think, who talked about the commonalities that Muslims and, and Christians shared in uh, one particular time in American political history. And I was wondering, as as you look at the landscape today and where the stereotypes and the mischaracterizations abound, what in your mind are some of the the common points that that Christians and Muslims share that need to be emphasized for the sake of better understanding and commonality on these issues?
1: Well, I mean, there's two pieces of that. One is the fact that the book, in some sense, addresses that, but in another sense, tries to keep the focus, the reader's focus on the fact that religious freedom doesn't really require doctrinal agreements that the beauty of it i mean having been trained at the beckett fund where our founder seamus hassan wrote a book called the right to be wrong right he describes religious freedom as the right the human right to be wrong and the idea is that you don't have to agree with each other in fact the reality is you don't even have to like each other but you can still protect each other's rights and i think that is really sort of a different radical way to think about the Muslim Christian polarization today, because if you could just focus it on the question of rights and how everybody needs to work together to protect that right in its most sort of robust and vibrant form, that I think it sort of helps to center the conversation and make it so that everybody understands what's at stake. Mm-hmm. But separate from that, I mean, look, I as a Muslim, like what we're always taught is that we're continuation of the message that started with the Old Testament and then was added to with the New Testament and that the Quran is like the final sort of completion of that message. And so my entire idea of my religion is one that's inherently linked to Judaism and Christianity. And so it's, it's actually just intellectually difficult for me to understand why people see us, why Christians would not see us as similar or as fundamentally related given our common origins. And in the book, I, I get to that and I, I don't get to it in a way that where I'm trying to get into like religious studies. I really needed to stay focused on my theme. And also, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of staying in my lane. And so I'm like, religious freedom is what I do. But at the same time, I, I do share my personal story. And in that personal story, I share the story of my son. Right, His name is Isa, which is Arabic for Jesus. And I also share the story, how he loves reading these prophetic stories of the Quran. Somebody who was reviewing manuscript was like, you should add that these are Quranic stories because people are going to think that they're biblical because it's a story of Jonah and Joseph and Moses. And so it's those are the, the stories that we share, right? I also work it in other ways. And I think it's interesting because I don't think I thought of it when I was doing it, but the feedback I've been getting, people are like, oh, did you use like language as a way to help people understand the connectedness between Islam and Christianity? And and i thought about it i was like okay that wasn't intentional but that that's precisely what i was doing with for example when i was critiquing steve bannon's statement that islam doesn't mean peace it means submission of course he means submission to some like nefarious agenda and i'm like well it, it all comes back to the triliteral root right which are the same s l m is a triliteral root in arabic for a whole host of words, including the word peace, which is Salaam, or submission, which is Islam. But when you understand that they're all sort of cluster of concepts, it's a peaceful submission, a peaceful submission to the divine. In fact, some scholars think that SLM is also the triliteral root for Solomon, as a prophet Solomon. And one made him the greatest king, that I mean, the Quran celebrates him as the greatest king to have ever lived, because he ruled through a div- sort of submission to the divine. And so I do it there. And I'm like, well, guess what? That's a figure that we share with you guys, Christians, that I do it with the with my story of how I was praying by the banks of the Potomac River on the 4th of July. Again, I totally just loved how it all came together without my thinking about it. But like the very sort of form of the Muslim prayer, it mimics the formation of the letters A-D-M in Arabic, which is the triliteral root for Adam. And Adam, we believe, was created from dirt. And so there's this whole symbolic element that you're praying, but you're also putting your forehead on the ground, which reminds you that not only of your origins, right? Adam as our father of humankind, but also where you're gonna end up after death, right? In the ground. And so it's like that thing that you think, that bowing and prostrating that looks really scary and foreign to you guys. Well, guess what? Not only is it not scary, but we're literally mimicking the letters of the same father of mankind that you believe is a father of mankind.
2: I was going to add that this being uh, Ash Wednesday and the fact that for Christians, we don't bow our heads down, but still get dirt on our foreheads to remind us that we're dust and to dust we shall return. So I I love that story. You know, I was remembering back to a class I took way back in my college days on Christianity and Islam and Judaism, where we would study the the texts, and you bump up against all of that that commonality, and and are fascinated by the fact that wow, there are, is so much from the the narratives of our our faith traditions that that weave together to recognize that in a very a very real way, our beliefs, even though they diverge in significant ways, at the same time have so many commonalities. I'm thinking about here in Minneapolis and the Muslims I know, for the most part, tend to be Somalis. We have a very large Somali community here, of course, our our congressperson, Representative Omar, as well. And I was I was just wondering if you could, because one of the things I think makes it perhaps difficult in some communities is, is not just the religious differences, but so often cultural differences, too. And if you just talk a little bit about that as far as getting to know and understand one another better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the complexity of it, right? Like, just the different cultures. I mean, that's like a big sort of talking point post 9-11 that a lot of American Muslims have used. That like, okay, that thing that you fear is more a cultural practice as opposed to a religious practice. Of course, like, even those that sort of division, like even the type of division that my book tries to tackle, this idea that somehow you can separate political theology from, from a religious, if it's something that you might think is religious. I mean, that's also kind of like a false conception. I mean, all these things sort of... Overlap. But of course, with culture, the fact that it's not sort of rising for something that's in Islam, right? And the fact that you can look across cultures and see such different traditions, it's it's important to create that separation where needed. I think you're also touching upon the question of like race. I mean, a lot of time people think of Muslims in a very specific way, right? I mean, this is like a religion of 1.8 billion people from across the world that covers pretty much every race. I mean, there's Bosnians who are Caucasian. There's plenty of Syrian Caucasians, there's Europeans and American converts who are Caucasian and and Muslim. And and yet the idea and we wouldn't even think about Muslims in terms of Southeast Asians, right? Indonesia is 99% Muslim and yet when we think of when we we see somebody who's from Indonesia, our first thought is not going to be that this person's Muslim. There's just a certain idea of what a Muslim looks like and it's going to be often a brown-skinned person unless they're wearing something that sets them apart through their religious garb. And so I think a lot of it is also just tied up into like that sort of racial component and the assumptions and prejudices that we have tied to a particular race and how that ends up impacting our impression of Muslims as well.
2: I see that you know my own communities, but but just how those two uh, issues are intractably entwined. But I love the way that you you know observe and and remind us of the way in which uh, Islam crosses so many cultures, just like Christianity does.
0: I was intrigued, Asma, by what you described of sort of the range of those 1.8 billion Muslims around the world. I think you said at one point that maybe forty percent are from countries that are hyper secular, kinda like France. Fourteen percent are religiously free and only the balance, forty-six percent or so, substantially tie religion to government. Maybe the numbers are a little bit off. But but I would be curious to ask, as you think about the religious liberty conversation for, for Muslims in America is different than the religious liberty conversation for, for Islam around the world, for Muslims around the world. What are some of those differences that should affect the framing of what we are pursuing for Muslim religious freedom in America or for religious freedom in America in general, given our advances vis-a-vis the realities of, of the snapshot of religious freedom elsewhere?
1: Sure. So those numbers that you cited are from Dan Philpot's work. He re- also recently came out with a book called uh, Religious freedom in Islam. And what he's, so he's talking about the range of Muslim countries, right? The 37 Muslim majority states. And what he's pointing out is that there's no inherent link, right? A lot of this, again, fear about Muslims and giving Muslims freedom. I often see this as comments on various op-eds that I write. Well, Muslims don't afford religious freedom to minorities living in their society. So why should we afford it to them? Which is always sort of perplexing for me because it's like, well, why exactly are we modeling American constitutional ideals and what Saudi Arabia is doing. Like it's just very, but it goes back to this idea earlier, what we were talking about like this cultural fusion, our understanding of Muslims. Like we just can't separate them, even if we're American born and raised and been here for multiple generations or since the founding of America, as many African-American Muslims have that those roots, right? It's like a significant percentage of the slaves that were brought over to the U.S. were Muslim. And so Islam in that way is quite indigenous to this country. And yet many people just They cannot think of Muslims without thinking about something that's foreign and always sort of associating American Muslims with what's going on abroad, which is why it was so important for me to put the American flag on my front cover. Right, Like it was just like, look, this conversation is going to be about America and about American Muslims, none of whom have any control over what any of these governments outside this country are doing. Again, it goes back to that sort of fundamental sort of assumed connection between all Muslims here and around the world and that and Islam and lack of freedom. That's like the other big theme. And so what Philpott does in his book is he says, well, look, if you look at the range of Muslim majority states, like there's no essentialism there because a full quarter of them are religiously free. What he says is like our conceptions of religious freedom. Like, I mean, of course, America is sort of like the standard bearer on that, but pretty close to that you see in these countries. Right. And then you see of the remaining 40 percent are they're repressive, but they're not repressive because they're trying to privilege Islam. They're repressive because they're they're actually, as they say, hyper secular and sort of like against all religions, right? So absolutely, you've seen before the AKP party, Muslim women headscarves weren't allowed to sit for university exams to that point, right? So, so don't think of repression as necessarily as tied into sort of a favoritism or dominance of Islam, because it's quite the opposite. And then of the remainder of remaining countries, then those are that are Islamist you'll see that they don't actually rule. These Islamist parties don't rule with popular approval. Like there's always, they're autocratic and there's a lot of resistance there among the actual sort of populace. Having that idea, that distinction, I I think that's a starting point, right? Like you have to create this break between essentialist ideas of of Islam and its oppressiveness and say, well, not quite. There are different Muslims incorporate Islam very differently, even when it is a part of the political structure of, of a state. Beyond that, I mean, concurrent to all my work uh, over the past decade on religious liberty, it's not all I mean, I actually started off almost entirely focused on the international realm. I worked on a case to help repeal the the blasphemy act in Indonesia, trained lawyers in the Middle East and North Africa region in order to bring their own religious freedom challenges, have heavily researched the blasphemy laws in Pakistan. And it's complex. I mean, even my work at the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom was really kind of like, there's so much here. If you are going to try to base it in religious foundation, there's so much there that does give you support for a broad conception of what Islam says about religious freedom. At the same time, what I saw was time and again, it was it was very little about what Islam says. I mean, even in Pakistan, where these legislatures will will say that this is all about implementing what Islam says, but there's a, it's a highly politicized. And I've personally worked with people who have come to the various sort of architects of, for instance, the blasphemy law and said, look, this thing that you're citing as religious proof. If you actually go back to the original text, it says something the opposite of what you're saying. So now that you know this, are you going to fix it? And the response has been no, because it's not in in our public interest, by which could mean a range of things, sort of using Islam to fight identity politics, not just within the country, but also internationally and this is idea of of religion versus secularism resisting western human rights norms because that's somehow a capitulation to secularism and a watering down of one's faith i mean there's all these like bigger political issues that supersede the actual sort of religious component
0: yeah i mean one, one thing i really appreciate about the book is that while it's tempting to think that these disagreements and antagonistic clashes are going to be solved in the court of law or at the high court maybe, you know, or maybe the UN plays a role or something. These conversations are also substantially advanced when religion to religion talks. And I think it's not that common to teach on Islam in evangelical seminaries, but Daniel, maybe you know better than me. I think it's not that common to do engagement work religious engagement work from a mosque toward a parish, from a mosque toward a church. But there's something about this this conversation being advanced religion to religion that is maybe part of the solution. And I think you guys getting out there as much as you are in the book suggests something toward the fix that is not just legal.
2: I was struck, Asma, how you were in describing your work, how so many of, the, of that narrative that you describe within your own community could be described in Christian communities too, capitulating to culture and religion being used for political agendas. And I, I wondered as as you speak to audiences where clearly there would be Christians in the audience, what kind of reception you receive. I know you write about one kind of quiet response you you got where you spoke, but are you finding that you're getting a listening ear from from Christians as you're sharing these things?
1: I am finding that. Of course it's it's the spaces where interesting thing that I've been thinking about is the idea of allyship. And lots of people in the Muslim community talk about it, but the allies are always people who are progressive, right? Like, who are these other minority, marginalized minorities who are fighting for their rights, and how can we ally together to fight for all of our rights? What I'm interested in exploring is what does authentic, true allyship look like among conservatives? And to date, I mean, this book coming out in July, the types of examples of that, that I have experienced have just been amazing. Like people who I trust, right? Because there's a question also of like, well, when you're invited into conservative spaces, are you just sort of being tokenized? Are you just there to help promote their agenda? Or are you there to be your full authentic self? And for me, it's always, it's so far to date, it has been that I'm invited into these spaces on the basis of trusted relationships. And I know on the basis of that relationship that I'm not going to Essentially be used. And when I go there, it's been my practice always throughout my work in religious freedom that when i when I enter spaces where I see an opportunity to speak about coherence and integrity in our defense of religious freedom, I very proudly and outwardly or sort of proclaim myself an American Muslim and say, look, i'm here, I'm here to support your religious freedom, but I fully expect that you will protect the religious freedom of my community. And that's just that's been an essential component. And so far, I've seen that it that it works. I mean, sometimes there, yeah, there is a story of my of how I went to the Religious Freedom Rally in downtown Chicago, and I said that, and it was just like total silence, all the, the cheering and the sign waving and everything came to a halt. But on the basis of the book, coming at this more intentionally, I've been in spaces that, like the National Religious Broadcasters, I had a leadership meeting a few months ago that I was at, and then now I'm going to their convention actually tomorrow. I fly to the convention. I've been Evangelical Universities, Christianity Today. Daniel has published a couple of pieces. Tom Berg from the St. Thomas University Law School wrote an excellent piece sort of explaining to the readership how the struggles that American Muslims are facing are relevant to and actually in many cases parallel to what Christians are facing. And Jason Casper did an interview about the book. That sort of reception, like it's been warm. I find it to be completely honest and authentic. And I think that those people who are speaking up I wonder sometimes like how to classify them, right? Because I think there's plenty of conservatives who see a book about Islam, and if it's not a book that's bashing Islam, would not even bother cracking it open. But there's like, it seems to me like maybe this is a silent majority. These are the people who are tired of the polarization, and and this is resonating with them, and that's why they're helping to sort of push it forward.
2: I was curious what you mentioned, some evangelical seminaries you've spoken to. I was wondering where you've been.
1: So I was at George Fox University, which is 40 minutes outside of Portland. I mean, I just had people like even just like writing to me, like people who are conservative Christians and they've like picked up the book and cracked it open and, and just found it fascinating.
2: I think one of the things that, that always strikes me is that I think for some Christians to have serious conversations across faith is fearful because there's a sense in which somehow I have to compromise by beliefs to do it, whereas it seems that the honest conversation is just one of mutual respect and the fact that we can, what we share is a, a seriousness about what we believe and how it shapes life and our outlook on things that, uh, you know, learn from another perspective it does more to enhance our own than not, but but that's hard. I think that's hard. And I was thinking about the the challenges that that Christians have speaking to Muslims has a lot to do with just a fearfulness that the engagement somehow is a, a compromise of, of our own faith somehow. And I, I wondered if you would talk about how speaking sort of strength to strength and devotion to devotion can actually enhance our faiths and you know, move this conversation forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that right now, for all the faults, problems and concerns that we have about the state of polarization today, I think that it offers a unique opportunity for people who are devout in their respective religions to understand the unique role that religion has to help us rise above the fray. To say that, look, as religious believers, we have an understanding about human fallibility, about a truth that's outside these political conversations. And we should be able to work together to create a model, not just for how together go above these politics, but also serve as a model for other people. And so I think that sometimes when you're kind of pushed into a space where now it's really just about religion versus secularism, right, or traditional religion versus non-traditional religion or traditional religion versus everyone else, I think that can help people see commonalities and common ground, whereas in other situations they might not be able to, right? They might be more comfortable staying in their respective silos. I also again think that I mean for me I really think that religious freedom not just as like a legal concept but the philosophy of religious freedom right the the rootedness of it in human dignity and the ability of it to just sort of help people of different beliefs Understand and be willing to speak to each other because they have a, this concurrence of interest, right? This, or what Derek Bell calls a convergence of interest. and, and just in the, that place of self-interest also helps people navigate these differences. And this idea of like diluting one's faith or feeling that we're somehow compromising our Christianity or the place of Christianity in in the country. I mean, again, if you go to the ideas behind even the Establishment Clause of the United States and what the founders were thinking when they chose to to disestablish churches, it was like, look, this preferring one religion actually ends up diluting that religion. That's the true dilution. When you allow this preference, which necessarily requires the government to be able to step into doctrinal issues and interfere in the religious autonomy of different religious organizations. And so when you kind of think of religious freedom as like these two pieces of it, where it's like the free exercise and this lack of establishment of Christianity as a national religion, it's like, well, that's actually better for us. So if we allow for this playing out and this robust vision of religious freedom, ultimately, not only is that better for our own religion, but it's just better for religion generally.
0: Maybe building on Daniel's question, I know you talked in the book about how there are still huge swaths of Americans who have never met a Muslim as a common pattern. You also talk about this notion of of movement from a moral majority to a persecuted minority being a norm or a pattern that is at play, especially amongst evangelical Christians and others who have previously been hegemonically privileged and and, and majority. What's your best piece of practical advice for those who are working at this from a position of authentic religious faith, crossing over? Not retreating to tribe and deepening and thickening in their own tradition, but but getting out there and meeting a person of different faith and having an encounter that is uplifting for the country.
1: I like the way you phrase that because I, as an American Muslim, like I think that as a minority, especially belonging to a quite despised minority, my approach has always been, use logic use like this language of religious freedom because you have to be able to connect to to people's self-interest first and foremost that's the only way to get through but it's it's interesting for me to think about the other way around right so when you are part of a of a majority or, or a group i mean of course there's like this whole question of whether or not white protestants are still they're not still a majority but they're still very much dominant as compared to other religious groups but that approach is different because you're just in a, a different position of power and privilege and it seems your the approach there is compassion. It's really been this effort that we do see many Christians and even Jewish Americans engaging in, which is like open our homes, have a space for conversation and actual personal bonding. And so I th- that's an important part of it, like how the strategies change depending on which group you belong to. I think another part of this is one thing that I'm actually exploring sort of like my next my, or my current research, I should say, after this book is something that I touch on in Chapter 8 and that I'm really hoping to flesh out more is this This conflation that I see happening on the part of many conservatives where they think of Muslims as allied with or almost just the same as the secular left or liberalizing forces that they see as threatening to conservative Christianity. I see a lot of that in the rhetoric and the positioning of, of Muslims, the way that there's like a resistance to even sort of acknowledging that Islamophobia is is a real and problematic thing. Well, Islamophobia is just a tool by the left to sort of silence dissent, or they're using Islamophobia just as a, a way to beat up on conservatives. And so because of that framing, it's just like, well, we're not even going to take these issues seriously because this somehow weakens our position vis-a-vis the left that to me is like, I see that exacerbating. It seems to me, is, as you said, the moral majority, it becomes, or sees itself as a persecuted minority because that sense of persecution, obviously, who is the persecutor? It's, it's the left. And now if you're going to sort of take these Muslims who only constitute 1% or less of the American population and say that they're actually quite powerful because they're allied with this big, powerful force, and therefore we're going to resist them as sort of like a part of mutual resistance. I mean, that dynamic is to me, really interesting. And I think given the sort of persecution phenomenon, I think it's just getting worse.
2: I'm thinking of a, a thing that happened recently in our church where we sponsored a Syrian refugee family and a devout Muslim family. And and just all that happened, to your point, Asma, of having people just in our homes where we can get to know one another and find that in so many ways there are our commonalities we share. And just being humans who believe in God and whose faith shapes our, our life that just to take those small steps uh, as individuals can go far, I think, in dispelling so much of the myth and mischaracterization that that comes with how we understand other religions.
0: Thanks, Asma. Thanks, Daniel, so much.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you.
0: Faith Angle connects leading journalists with the enduring questions raised by religion. Thanks for listening.